Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. I appreciate you tuning in for Healthcare Unfiltered. I appreciate your support and your feedback. Today's podcast is a very emotional one. We have all been hit with the overdose and the narcotic pandemic. It has taken the lives of many young people, old people, from all, all kinds of people. Several weeks ago, I came across a post on LinkedIn that was posted by Jody Odell, who is a vice president of sales at Acoustic Solutions and Architectural Textures. But it wasn't about her work. It was a very personal story about her son that she lost to a drug overdose several years ago. Her son, Jackson Odell, he died from an accidental drug overdose on June 8, 2018. Four years later, Jody posted on LinkedIn about him and talked about him in a very emotional way that struck me and brought tears to my eyes. I reached out to her. We corresponded by email, and she generously accepted to come on my podcast to share the story. I wanted to tape this podcast for various reasons. One, it is very important to highlight this pandemic. Yes, it is a pandemic. Things happen, we lose many, many, many people, innocent people because of drug overdose. This podcast is not about putting the blame as to what caused what, but it is about sharing that this issue exists and persists. The second reason is I really wanted to use this platform to remind all of us with the people that we lose. Jackson Odell was an amazing, talented individual, actor, musician. Some of you probably seen his shows and seen his, the series that he appeared in. It is very important to recognize that we need to keep these people in our memory. So this episode is dedicated to him and to his family. It's an attempt to keep him in our minds. And the third reason is to highlight the power of social media, how it could connect people in a way that we never really thought about before. There was no way I could have met Jody Adel if it wasn't for her post. And she will share with you on today's podcast the millions of impressions that she got in her post and how many people reached out to her to talk to her. Despite how emotional this podcast is, I hope that you utilize it to raise awareness about drug overdoses. You utilize it to bring social media to a use that highlights the good things and to bring the memory of a life that was lost because of drug overdose. Thank you for tuning in to Healthcare Unfiltered. Uh, Jody, welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I know you're extremely busy. It took us a while to arrange for this uh, 
podcast. So I'm very, very grateful for your time. Uh, maybe as we get started, a little bit about you and what you do, where you are, and just tell us a little bit about you. Oh, a little bit about me. Well, I'm the mother of four uh, amazing children who are scattered. Um, one, of course, has passed away, which we'll talk about Jackson today. I'm currently in Colorado, spent the last 15 years in Los Angeles. And that was because Jackson, at a very young age, had a lovely career in, in the entertainment business until his tragic passing. I've spent my entire 30 year professional career in the architecture and design industry. My background's interior design. I'm married to an architect. My older son's an architect. So we are in a very creative family, have always been this way. So every child has found their creative path along the way. So that's, that's about me in a nutshell. Thank you, Jody. And uh, I know probably some parts of this podcast are not going to be super easy, but uh, me and you have talked about this is all about Jackson and uh, highlighting his story, who he was and who he is and, 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 and maybe what lessons learned. So tell us a little bit about Jackson, your son. Jackson um, was my, my firstborn son. My other two children were my stepchildren. So he was my firstborn and he was, um, of course, my first son. He, this child came out and in, into this world knowing exactly who he was. He was gifted with anything a mother or, or, or parents would want in a child. He was so intelligent. He was incredibly handsome. He was a personality that just people were drawn to. And he also was so musically gifted. That was early recognition. Um, he, he just, he could play sports, everything and more that you'd want your child to be. This, this child was, he was golden on the house to say it. He, I used to sit back and look at him going, oh my gosh, this is my child. And I felt like I was, I was along for the ride of Jackson's journey but Jackson was leading the way from the very early age. He led the way and we were just there to, to try and guide and manage and help facilitate. And he very early on recognized he wanted to be music's where it started. He was very, very gifted musically, ended up with the Colorado Children's Chorale, was the youngest child ever to audition and get into that professional touring group. That led him to meet people who decided to help him try to get to Hollywood. He was 10 years old and we had an opportunity to take him to LA. A dear friend of mine whose daughter is a very successful actress in LA today, has been since she was a child. She told me to take Jackson to Hollywood, not to worry. He's so young, he's so green nobody, you know, nothing will happen. I had my own design firm going. I had, you know, a husband and other children, a household to run with my husband. And this was not in my field of vision to take this journey to Los Angeles. So thinking it would be a temporary couple weeks, but geez, Jack, wasn't that fun? Wasn't I, well, I'm not a great mom. Nothing would happen. We'd come back to Colorado. Well, it didn't happen that way. His very first audition, he booked a Disney opportunity and everything in my world just sort of tumbled from there. This child was very successful, very lucky in a very tough industry. As he found his way into the shows and movies he did, he really, really wanted to pursue his musical desires. So 
you know, again, it was Jackson's journey. So we let him in some contracts he had in the TV business and he started to pursue music and very successfully at 17, he wrote the soundtrack to a feature film, all the main tracks he wrote. Um, so was he, was he in school in LA at the same time he was doing this or was he just quit school and just focus on music and acting? He was in school technically, but he never went to regular school. So when you're, when you start to become successful, you're on set and they have set teachers. So he was educated either on his days off when he wasn't working, he was at home being educated or he was on set and they had set teachers when he was a minor. So there are very strict rules with SAG that protect them, which is great to make sure that they stay you know, on the education track and get what they need. He, he was brilliant. He, perfect score on his SAT. It, it didn't even study for it. <laughs> Realized the night before it was coming the next day. I'm like, Jackson, we should reschedule this. Kids, kids study for months. He's like, oh, mom, I've got this slid into the test just barely on time, took it and just, he was just that child. I mean, he wasn't the kind of child who, when he had downtime, video games was not his thing. He was studying quantum physics. He was studying big bang theory. He was, you know, crazy about Einstein and all things, you know, to relate to science and Stephen Hawking's, he, he devoured anything that Stephen Hawking said, wrote, did whatever. That's where he spent his time. So had he not gone into this path of entertainment and the music, definitely I would, this kid would have been in the sciences somehow in some level. He just could not get enough knowledge in his brain. He, he loved it, loved it. And I, I asked, I wanted him to go down the college path, yeah. but the music career had already started and all his producers said, you know, why send him to college? Because he knows what he's going to do. They really can't teach him anything. He doesn't already know about what he's doing. Let him go. So I did. I let him bypass college and continue on his education through music that he wanted to do. So that's he's brilliant. Um, what was the impact of that on uh, his siblings? Really hard. Um, I think jealousy is is easy to identify and it's understandable because so much effort and time, our entire family ended up leaving everything we ever built in Colorado and moving to LA for Jackson, because it was obvious, you know, Jackson and I were in LA, my husband and my younger daughter, uh, she's 14 months younger than Jackson. They were here in Colorado. He had his architectural business. My parents came to try and take care of her. We were a family in too many places. So my husband sold his architectural practice and moved to LA with us. My daughter was in the fourth grade. I ended up taking her out from all she ever knew, put her into a whole new environment in the fourth grade, which was really hard for her. She's 20, almost 24. She's in Chicago, um, struggles with that still. She still has issues with how her life was upended. And But she loved him, always thought that she would be on the musical journey with him, but more on the business side. She studied music business in college. She was in her uh, second year of college when he passed away. Uh, and she continued on that journey, I think, just blindly, not knowing else to, to do. The She was so severed and in so much pain. Um, I have my tissue. Hang on. But she, you know, she, I'm very sorry. I'm very right. sorry. There are days I can talk without tears and days I can't. What what tell, tell, tell us what instruments did he play? Taught himself piano. It was amazing. Um, so if anything, I will say this to you, anything that made music, if it could make a noise, Jackson would master it. 
he was, I think probably five. And we, I had purchased a beautiful baby grand piano and put it in my home. None of us played. I just liked the, the aesthetic of it. And my husband had taken Jackson and the kids to see, I think it was Star Wars. And I'm asleep and the music room is below my bedroom. And I hear someone in my home. It's after midnight and the piano is playing. My heart thinks, oh my gosh, who's in my house? I go flying downstairs, not in fear. I, I have, if there's a fight or flight, I'm a fighter, not a fl I don't flee, I fight. I go downstairs and there's my five-year-old in tears and he's crying. He's got both hands on that keyboard. I'm like, Jackson, baby, what's wrong? And he's like, mommy, this song is in my head. I can't get it out of my head. He was being tortured by this music. He couldn't stop. And so he went to the piano and started to play. I'm thinking, oh my gosh. And he's playing the Star Wars theme, two hands, five years old. So I'm realizing, okay. So I reached out to a young piano teacher um, cause Jackson said, mommy, you know, I said, Jackson, do you want lessons? He goes, mommy, I want to play. I want to play jazz. I don't want to play classical. I want to play jazz. And he's five. So I hired, called this young gentleman who's in also, he's in Chicago now. Um, and I said, listen, I've got a five-year-old. Can I hire you for an hour to come and see if he's something that you want to work with? And he said, how old is he? And I said, he's five. He's like, I'm sorry, but that attention spans 15 minutes max. I said, tell you what you come. And if Jackson's done in 15 minutes, I'll still pay you for the hour and you could free to go. Well, his name was Derek Berg. He shows up. He was with us for well over an hour and Jackson still wanted to keep playing. He's like, okay, I see what you're saying. Let's work with this. And so that's where it started. Um, but as he, you know, he started to grow up as a teenager, my, my um, father had given my husband a guitar and my, so Jackson had access to it. Jackson picked it up and Jackson started to play. So I don't know if you know who Peter Frampton is, the musician Peter Frampton, back from my days. His daughter Mia and Jackson were really good friends. And Mia wanted to learn how to play the guitar. And Peter Frampton being a master guitarist on the world stage, wouldn't teach Mia. So he hired a gentleman named John O'Kennedy. And I thought, hmm, if Peter Frampton thinks John O'Kennedy is good enough for his daughter, he's good enough for Jack. So I hire John to come into the house once a week and just, just, you know, help Jack learn some technique. So John came the first week and I, I'm not a musician. Let me just say, I, I don't play anything. I would aspire to play nothing. Don't no talent whatsoever in that industry. And I could hear them and I was, I could listen and hear, and then John would leave and he came back the next week and I heard him again and he would say bye and off it go. But the, by the first month, John said, Jody, I could keep taking your money and I would love to sit here with your kid all day. He goes, you don't need me. This kid has got a, an old soul. I give him something to do. I come back and he's months and years ahead. Let him go. He understands this. There's nothing I can do other than just hang out with him because I, I enjoy his talent. So Jack. That's, that's amazing. That's really amazing. So, but, but now, now you all, you all moved to LA. So you're all in LA um, and, and he's, he's progressing with this. So, so Jody, we hear a lot about the Hollywood, the industry, the entertainment just from TV, that it's a very difficult atmosphere and environment. As a mother, were you afraid of whatever influence he may have? Absolutely, 100%. And I will tell you, so just to, to make it obvious, Jackson died of a drug overdose. Um, but I will tell you, it had nothing to do with Hollywood. Everyone in LA, every producer, director, musician, actor that he was involved with, 
that wasn't happening. He was in a, he was very protected in that, in that environment. Cause again, he was a child at the time, how, where it happened. And I, I think I can go back now and connect dots that I wish I had understood better. Jackson was so smart and Jackson was fiercely independent as far as just, he had control or it would seem of what he was going to do. And how it happened is because he never went to school after the fifth grade, he didn't have those group of friends that you, that you, that you, you get when you're in school that you foster and that you build on. And he, I think so desperately wanted friends like that. So through our daughter, who was now, you know, in high school, he met some friends that she went to high school with. They were older classmen than her and dated a girl. This girl had friends and Jack fell into that friend group. And Jackson had money because he worked. He had access to, to sums of money. And I think Jackson was, was a couple of key things I think happened with Jack. Jack was all about, yes, Jack did not walk into life. Jack jumped. He, we flew to China when he was 13. He performed in China and at 13, we went to the night markets and here I am, you know, I'm in China and it's not like I can go to France and Italy and work through the language. The Chinese language is completely not relatable to me. And there's not even letters, they're characters. So there's no way to even understand. We're at the night markets and they have all these beautiful things that you can eat and drink and touch and smell. Jack ate scorpions on sticks. He ate weird eyeballs with Jackson. Please don't, because if you get sick, I am not sure I know how to help you. Because, you know, this is a whole different situation in a, this amazing country where it doesn't relate to anything that I, I know how to take care of. But he just said yes to everything. He wanted, he wanted to be part of things. He wanted to be in things. He wanted to experience things. So I should have paid attention to that because Jack was wants to, Jack wanted to have experiences. Jack, I, I will tell you too, he under, we, we talked about drugs often. He studied them. He was so fascinated with the brain and what the brain did. He was fascinated by people taking, um, was it seven mushrooms and having these spiritual experiences. Jackson wanted to know about that. So I sh again, should have paid attention. I never did drugs. Drugs is I don't drink much. I have maybe a martini every once a week, if even that. I'm not someone who's ever done drugs in my life. So I had no way to identify with what I started to see happening. But he's with these kids and some of them had gone to college. One kid was on Adderall. It started with some marijuana. And all of a sudden, before, I, before my eyes, my beautiful blonde, blue-eyed boy was changing. His eyes were different. He was so loving and so close with me. And all of a sudden it was resistance. It was standoffish. I wasn't quite sure I was getting the truth from him, but I couldn't identify what was happening thinking, okay, he, he's, is it just teenage angst? What, what is, what is happening to my child? And by the time I found- how, how old was he when you started noticing a change? Um, towards 18, 17, 18, he died at 20. So and the, and the changes you noticed, Jody, were you were starting to describe the changes you noticed. He he would you know he would just profusely sweat. His eyes he had he had such bright blue eyes. His pupils were pinpricks, and his eyes typically his you know pupils were large. You know blue eyed you know, 
he, he, his, his skin, he started to have strange things on his skin that didn't look normal. He never had acne. He was, again, the kid was just, he, he had it pretty good. Now all the typical teenage things, the kid didn't go through any of that. His skin stayed beautiful and all of a sudden it wasn't. And he was anxious. He would miss, miss meetings he was supposed to go to things that were completely out of character for him. Um, my husband, I, I leaned to him, say, help me with this. You know, he grew up in the seventies, my husband. So he did smoke pot and did some things. He's like, oh yeah, this is, you know, this is normal stuff. This is normal. I'm thinking, I don't think this is normal. He looks and acts so different. And then I got to where I found pieces of, oh no, even before that, things like I, spoons were missing from my, my, my drawer. Um, the foil, my, my rolled up tin foil was not. So, but, but, but he lived at home with you. He did. But in also another thing, I, I look back and go, oh, how silly of me. He always had a place that was detached. We had a, we had a home that he lived in a detached house on the property. So he had access to come and go. I shouldn't have done that. I, 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 I trusted him and believed in him so much because he seemed so, and he was, and so many levels, he was so far advanced. You know, he was so much more mature and capable than some adults that I have in my, in my life. So I probably gave him way too much rain. Once he got his driver's license, there was too much. I'll tell you this, this, this phone, this, this killed my child. There's no doubt he had access to drugs, to people that I never, I mean, too much happens on this phone. Way too much happens on that phone. You talk about social media and I use it in a different way, but once he died, I had his phone. Unbelievable, unbelievable what was going on on his phone because it was a way for him to do what he was doing invisibly. I mean, there were no conversations. There was no interactions. It was all done on this. By the time he was caught up. Jody, well, do you want to, so, so before, we, like when you, when you say about the, the phone um, and uh you felt he was in, like you felt he was starting to withdraw and just rely more on electronics. Is that what happened? Um, no, he didn't rely on electronics. He was he was on the go still. He could just do all his dealings on his iPhone. He could do all of his drug dealings and reach his dealers and everything he needed was he could do on his phone. And we could be sitting in the same room and he's on his phone. I don't know what he's doing. I don't know what's who he's texting or what's going on, no idea. Um, so as you notice these changes in his body, I guess you said some of the things in terms of his face, his pupils and so on. Um, clearly as a mother, you, you got worried at the same time, he's now over 18 and he's a little bit more dependent. How did you approach this? Um, when I really figured out that he was actually doing heroin, I, I know, I discovered pieces of foil in his room. And there were black lines on it. And he, first time I found them, he said, oh, mom, it's just hash. And I said to my husband, what is this? He goes, yeah, probably it's just hash. And I'm thinking, oh, that, that sounds more serious than you guys are acting. But my child just kept stumbling. And he just, I, I knew my mother's heart knew something's wrong with my child. So I finally took my phone and I Googled you know, aluminum foil with black lines and it popped up just as big as you please. And I thought, okay, and I was home alone. Jack was out, everyone was out of the house. I thought, I need him to come to me. I need him to come to me right now. 
and I need to, I need to get his attention calmly and make it urgent enough that he comes to me now. So instead of going, oh my gosh, I know what you're doing. I said, baby, it's mom. We have a family emergency. How soon can you get home? He came right home and I confronted him. And it was as if I had, I was watching a caged animal. We were in my home office, the door was closed and he was pacing and all of a sudden it was anger. And it was, it almost became physical him towards me because suddenly I, I figured it out and now he was caught. And I think he didn't want this to be what happened. I think he was very, very ashamed and didn't want really, we really to know. He didn't want to let me know he was so trapped. So, and you're right, he's 18 now. And I will tell you, nothing magic happened in the stroke of midnight when a child goes from 17 to 18. He was no more capable of being in the world and making decisions. But now legally, I have zero authority. I cannot make him do anything. I can't make him go to rehab. I can't get him to a doctor. I have zero. Doctors don't have to talk to me now. And they don't. They don't. So it became... Now I am way behind the eight ball. My, my son is so far down a road. He is so trapped. And I call it a seductress. Heroin's an evil seductress. She will promise you all these things and she will deliver them, but then she will take you in the end. So Let, let's talk about this first conversation, confrontation, I would say. You're there, you're with him in the home office. Yeah. You're upset. He's upset. Did you, did you reach an agreement? Like what, what, take me through what he obviously admitted. He did not deny it, but did he say he will do something or did he deny it? And he said, he no. denied oh, deny, deny, deny. I'm wrong. I'm wrong. I'm wrong. I'm like, oh honey, this, and I'm not wrong. And it, it truly got to where I was a little afraid physically that he was, he was, you know, I'm five foot four and he's over six feet. And I, he got very aggressive with me, but again, he was trapped. And I don't, I don't know that I got really angry with him at that moment. I certainly did laughter, but I'm trying to stay calm to go. We need to fix this. We need to fix this now. This cannot continue, but he just wouldn't accept it. It was denial. So, you know, I'm, I'm completely out of my element. I don't know what to do with this. I, you know, tried to reach out to people for help. It got to where we had to call 911 because we had taken, I think I'd taken his phone from him. And he just became just enraged and he grabbed a knife and said, I'm going to cut myself if you don't give it to me. And I said, Jackson, don't go there. So we, we, I was afraid of what he might do just, just to get his way. So we called 911, not knowing that when you do that, when the police come and this is what's going on, they put him into a, I forget what it's called, but he ended up going to like a 72 hour hold in the facility scared him scared us he you know he was in, I was so afraid to go see him there I wouldn't go I'd go to the parking lot my husband would go in I just couldn't imagine seeing my child like this he would call begging mom I'm sorry get me out of here get me out of here so that started like okay if you're going to come home and live with us you've got to go into rehab here's also what I didn't understand and this is this has got to change I don't know that I I have the fortitude to change this on my own in California, and also I believe in Florida, the whole industry, sober living facilities, it's unregulated. These are major money makers. They are profit centers. We luckily had amazing insurance. Come to find out when he got out of rehab and, was, and then he goes into sober living, they are bilking my insurance $5,000 a day. 
and it's unregulated. There's no real governing agency. There's no accountability. And what I've learned through this is they want these kids to stay addicted. There are drug dealers who circle these houses and keep these kids on drugs because they want to keep these bodies in these beds because I know my insurance alone, $5,000 a day for the sober living facility. Is that for real? Do you oh. really know for sure some oh, people yes. give drugs there? Or is, this is a big accusation. Oh, it's, a, oh it's, it's absolutely true. Absolutely true. 100%. Happened to my kid. In fact, oh, I, I, well, I have his phone. I know this because I have so, his so phone. So he was in rehab. You, he, you were able to get him into rehab. Yes. And he goes to the program. But then they, they also drug them up on gabapentin and all these other things. So I never understood what made sense. You know, you're trying to wean him off of one substance, but you got him on another. And he was so dulled down. He was so dulled down. It was hard to watch this happen. We also had him, I found an amazing doctor. He's an addiction specialist. His name was Dr. Stark in Los Angeles. He was amazing. He, they would give Jackson a shot. I forgot, oh my gosh, what's the name of this drug? And the drug was supposed to, override so if jackson tried to get high it would stop the effects of it oh what's it called what's the name for it oh i forgot it completely but he would get a shot and it would keep the drugs from having an effect on him you have to go every month because it, it wanes so dr stark was amazing and he explained it to me this way you know you and i and jackson could all go to a party and we would all have the same drink or this take the same drugs you and i go holy cow that was a crazy night we're done with this he said one in three people have what's called an addictive brain. And when, when Jackson, who had the addictive brain, when he took that first hit, it turns a switch on in the brain. That addiction now has been activated and you can never flip the switch off. It never goes back off. You now are going to fight the rest of your life against it. Some people do make it. And if you can watch the news every day and see how many aren't making it. You know, now fentanyl is part of the conversation, which is a whole other category of, of, I think to me, it's, it's a pandemic. I mean, the drug problem we have in this country. Oh, is it is. I mean, there is, there is a lot of that in terms of, there is a pandemic and there's actually a documentary on Hulu called Dope Sick, which oh, I really- Oh, I, I I've watched it. Yeah, but let me, I wanna go back to Jackson. So he was in rehab. Uh, rehab was not successful, it appears like. When did he leave rehab and how did things progress from there until the day when this happened? I wanna- as emotional as this is, I'd like to go through what happened that day. So he was in rehab and actually he was doing well. The first sober living he went to, you know, and part of it too, was it was a house full of, of men. So that, you know, there's no male, female combination. And I think he made friends. And I think Jackson so much always wanted to have a group of friends because the friends he had in the industry were, are different. They're very different relationships. These are all actor kids and, it's, it's, an, it's a different kind of relationship. So he met these young men and he was doing quite well. But like I said, all of a sudden, there are drug dealers. They have access and they go grab things and they bring them in. And Jackson was given some gabapentin, a prescription, but he let other people in the house have them. And so he got kicked out of this, this facility. He was doing well there. So when he got kicked out, that tripped him up and he started to panic. And so... It was now trying to find him another place to be. And there's, you know, there's so much that happened in between. He, you know, he's going to therapists. He's got what they call IOPs, outpatient you know, therapies. He's doing all these things he's supposed to do. But once he, he got in trouble with that first house, 
got kicked out, which I under, I understand. I wish they hadn't. I think he would have hopefully come through this. He ends up in a really unfortunate sober living house. And what they do is they lease these houses. They lease them and they fill them up with, with people. Jackson and the, the sober living, he actually died in the sober living house. He died in that house. There was a, there's, this house had a combination of, of men and women. And there was a young woman, a heroin addict who Jack befriended. And she, and I, again, I can verify because this is all on his phone. I mean, it, it's sad because I know the timeline of my child's death. I know exactly what happened. She had asked him, would she, would he get heroin for her? What does Jackson do? He says, of course, I'll get it for you. So he goes to Koreatown in Los Angeles in an Uber, Uber's over. He Ubered there. He got there at 5.30. There is a, a curfew at the sober living house. Jackson knows this. He stayed in Koreatown from 5.30 until 10. He is in an Uber. He's trying to get his way back. And the drug dealers he was with, and by the, and by the way, I, they were... They were Snapchatting stuff. So I could go back and see some of the things that were on his phone. And they were texting him and saying, dude, you're going to be okay. Dude, are you okay? We got you. Which tells me he probably OD'd in Koreatown because he threw up in the Uber. And so he's thrown up in the Uber and then he's got a white t-shirt on. And it, it was whatever he threw up had a very red sort of stain to it. He literally walks into that sober living house. The house manager, a young woman, approaches him. And he, you, if you're an addict and you're watching addicts, you know what they look like when they're high. There's just no way you don't know. He must look like a wreck. He had vomit down his shirt. And he said to her, oh, yeah, it's barbecue sauce. I went to a barbecue. She bought the story. He goes into his room. And they're, they're not supposed to be alone in their rooms. They're supposed to have roommates. He had his own room problem. So apparently he lays down. <sighs> hmm. The young girl who he went to get drugs for said she knocked on his door at 1130. So he would have been in the, you know, in the house by 1030. I'm not sure what time he laid down. But she knocked on his door and he, they were, you know, she wanted to get her drugs and watch a movie with him. She said he didn't answer, but she heard really loud snoring. And I just wanted to grab her and say, you know what that sound was? That's that guttural snoring. He's dying. That's what it sounds like when they're dying of a drug overdose. They have this sound and she didn't open the door. It wasn't locked. I think, I don't know that she told us the truth. I think maybe she did drugs with him. I, maybe, because there was no paraphernalia, nothing found. But again, I think there was a big cover-up because the time, by the time we got the phone call, hours and hours and hours had passed. So he laid down. He had taken off his boots. He was still in the clothes. He still had his shirt on. And he was on his stomach. And he, according to the police report, was hugging his pillow and he went to sleep and didn't wake up. I, that morning, which I think is interesting, the morning of the day we got the phone call, I was leaving LA to go to Chicago. 
And this is what prompted the post, by the way. This is where the post on LinkedIn where you saw, this is where it came from. I was leaving LA to go to this global design event that I've gone to for so many years. It is an industry event that I just love going to. All my friends, design friends from around the world show up at this event. That's where we see each other. And I love this event. And, and I was, I went to LA, I go to LAX. And when I, usually when I travel, because I'm used to travel alone, I like people. I talk to everybody I'm, and I am typically so happy to be going on this trip to Chicago. But that morning I woke up and I had such a heaviness. It was 5.30 in the morning when I woke up to get showered, to get to LAX. And I was just so heavy and so like felt uneasy. Wasn't I was not excited by this trip. I thought, what's wrong with you? I get to the airport. I'm sitting there quietly. I talk to no one, which is not usually, if you see me in normal circumstances and I don't know you, I'll, I'll talk to anybody and I, I'd love to meet people. I sat quietly at the gate. I got on the plane. There was a, a lovely elderly woman next to me who did English was not her. She actually didn't speak English, which I and I didn't realize I was trying to help her a little bit, but I just hunkered down and I just, you know, worked on my computer again, felt this heaviness. And I kept thinking, what's wrong? Why are you, what's wrong? Why are you not happy about this trip? I land in Chicago. I get my luggage. I'm in a, the car. I called an Uber and I'm texting one of my colleagues who I'm supposed to see for dinner that night. I'm thinking, why are you not excited? Why, why are you so humdrum? I thought, get off your phone, put your phone down and look out the window. You're in Chicago. You're happy to be here. What's wrong with you? What, what, why, what, why are you feeling this heaviness? The driver gets me to the hotel. I'm in the hotel lobby. I'm trying to check in. It's full of people. It's a very busy, big hotel, downtown Chicago. And they can't find my reservation, which is a problem because you don't want to be in the city with 100,000 people coming to a meeting and not have a hotel room. And my phone keeps ringing. And I see it's my husband. I just think, okay, I'll call him back. He keeps calling. The, the woman helping me at the desk steps away for a second. So I, he's calling again. I grab the phone. And the first thing he says to me, so you're sitting down. And I said, well, no, honey, I'm in the middle of a busy lobby. What's, what's going on? He, he just says it. He just says the words. He says, Jackson is dead. And it, it, it wasn't like I knew it wasn't a possibility. It was, I was so fearful of it, so fearful. But when it happened, it just, and I, 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 remember, I remember being picked up off the floor and I remember hearing screaming. And then I realized it was me, I was screaming. And the hotel staff, they scoop me up. They put me in a car. And I, I look back now going, how did all this happen? These hotels, I like, come to find out, they, this happens. People die and they're trained to help people in these situations. And they did a beautiful job of very quickly getting me where I needed to go. But I, I have no doubt that that happiness I was feeling, I think I knew... I think I knew my son was gone somehow, but I'm so sorry. I'm so that sorry. melancholy feeling was, I think I knew, I think I somehow knew that my boy was gone. And I don't know if he was, if his energy was trying to talk to mine or, and I had to fly home five hours on a plane. 
And by the time I got to LA, it was all over the news. The paparazzi knew about it. My husband and my daughter, you know, the United let them come to me at the gate. They brought them to me and they put us on a little cart to get us out of there. But it, the, the news media outlets were all over the story wanting to know what, you know, because we kept his addiction quiet, which I don't know if it was good or bad, but it was hit the industry he was in. You just, they want to keep this in a bubble to protect. This is, you know, and now everyone talks about their mental health. They all talk about, and I wish Jackson, it was, I wish he was already in the conversation Maybe we would have understood how to get more help. People would have known. Maybe they would have reached out to help us. Instead, we were trying as a family unit, a naive family unit, trying to save him. So that's so the, the post. I can, I can only I can only imagine how emotional you recounting this. Uh, I am I am terribly terribly sorry. How long ago was that, Judy? Four years ago, on June eighth. And that's the post you saw. And you, you know, you originally asked me about social media. After he died, there were just, there was just so much noise around the whole situation. And there's just so much pain. And you're just I like, you know, I, I liken it to my nerve endings being exposed and then lit on fire. You're you're severed, your 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 emotional nerve endings are just destroyed. And there's this hollow, there's like, there's like a life, you know, Jackson size hole in my soul and it doesn't fill up. It, you know, people talk about, you know, time heals all wounds. No, <laughs> no, it doesn't. This, this is not a wound and time's not going to take this away. Jackson's gone forever. It's not going to heal. It's not, it's not going to get better. What, what I end up doing is learning how to, how to get through my day without falling apart, but the loss of my child doesn't get better. And as far as social media, and that was something that you wanted to talk about, well, I have before, all... Before, before we get there, um, before we get there to social media, I mean, I, I think it's probably reasonable to reflect a little bit. I mean, clearly there was an issue going on and, and, and all of these things. Did you address any of this, whether it's with the house, whether it is with his friends, whether it is with the police officers that came in? And I mean, how did, was there an investigation into the possibility that, you know, anything that happened from this or was it just, okay, this is just one of many that we see and we move on? Exactly. We, we talked to lawyers. They said, you will spend, because I knew who the drug dealers were. I knew their numbers. I had their pictures. This, um, so the sober living house where he died in, he would have died. They knew they knew he was deceased that morning. We didn't get a phone call till one in the afternoon, which speaks volumes to me. I think they were cleaning up the room. I think they knew they were in trouble. Within a matter of days, that house was empty and they had relocated somewhere else. So that to me is is um, a big show of fear. What do you so afraid? How, how, how is that? How is that not like a red flag for the cops? Uh, Los Angeles is such a mess. It's, it's one of many. It's one of many. And every lawyer said you will spend more time trying to fight this. It, it's, it's, there's other, there's bigger things them to worry about. I, I said, I've got, I've got pictures. I've got ooh, receipts. I've got everything you could imagine. I can show you where, I, where they are. Didn't matter. Didn't matter. That is, um, that is really, um, 
I, it is impossible, like you said, to, to cope with something like this. And the wounds, like you said, don't heal. I can only imagine. But um, in the days that followed or in the weeks that followed his, his death, um, I don't know, what did you do? How, I mean, did you have to join support groups? Did you try, what, what did you do? And, and then take me through until the day where you decided to post that emotional post, which led us to connect with each other. Before he passed away, we did get involved in um, the Al-Anon group. And we would go to these meetings. And I learned, I learned some coping skills from them. I learned, you know, how to try and detach my child from the addict and how to detach myself. Because I, I, I can't control it. I could not control you, you know. As a mother, you want to save your child. I want to control this. I could do none of those things. It was so out of my hands. I had to not enable him. So what we did, we shut down all of his accounts and didn't give him access to his funds, things, because I was still on his accounts. We had never changed. So we did things like that to try and not enable him. I, I did what I regret to this day and tried the tough love and kicked him out. I should never, I look, I look back going, even if the death was the, was the ultimate end result, the time that he wasn't with me, now I would love to have those days back, but I kicked him out. Um, I was angry with him. And I, I think I struggled that with the thoughts and the knowing that I probably made him feel ashamed of himself with through my anger. And that's what he didn't want. He didn't want, he, he was already ashamed. He was, he was already ashamed. And there's just a lot of Wishing I could go back, but you asked. So those first few days, I think what happens too, which I think society, we need to look at this and then maybe other, other cultures and other societies do it differently. I don't know, but here, as soon as someone dies, you, you are thrown into the business of death. You're thrown into all of this, you know, my gosh, what are you going to do with the body? Where are you gonna, where's it going to be the service? Oh my gosh. And, and the fact that he also was a young man in an industry that suddenly the, there's contracts and there's all these things you have to deal with. You're thrown into it. You don't have a minute to go, okay, I need to take a deep breath. You are thrown into the business of, of death. And someone said to me, how did you get out of bed every day? I don't think I thought not to get out of bed. I, I had to get up. My husband and I lived in the Hollywood Hills at the time. And we would just walk. I needed to move for fear. If I didn't, I might not ever move again so we walked and walked and walked and cried and cried and, and it sounds so naive and I look at back and go god I feel so naive to even say this but we had him cremated and I kept thinking before his he was cremated I thought I am smart enough I am smart enough to try and figure out way to bring him back as before we cremate him I, I know I can figure out a way to bring him back and I would walk and think and talk and I would cry, you know, I'd, I'd talk to Jackson. We walked, we walked and walked and walked. Um, and I was desperate to, I would have told you before he died, I would have said to you that I was, I don't know if I'd say religious, but I prayed, I believe, I prayed for him to come through this. That just came to a screeching halt. I would tell you, I'm, I feel very void. I feel very numb. When, and it's tragic, but when I see these awful things happening all over the news and all these cities and all these children, I can't even cry. What I cry about, I'll cry about Jackson, but everything else feels just numb. And then we, I did go to a therapist and 
she again gave me gave me tools. I didn't go very long, and because I kept running through my head, going, "Unless you've lost a child, how in the world can you understand how to help me? How can you tell me how to get through this if you haven't gone through it yourself?" So I just kept it. I kept it very inward. Try to keep my daughter in therapy. In fact. I had her even through COVID, which she couldn't see people. I had her on Zoom therapy in Chicago just for her to have release. But I felt very desperate to understand what is death? Where is he? Is there something? Is there nothing? If there's something, why don't we know what it is? Why doesn't why doesn't he come back and tell me he's okay? So I, I, I started just devouring everything I could about death. You know, near-death experiences, people who die in the operating table and they see, you know, they see their surgery and they come back and trying to find something to attach to, to understand where is he. I went to a medium. I went, but it was weird to go to a medium because I'm too, you can Google my name. You can Google his name and find, you know, so you can, they could be fed all they needed to be fed to, if they're even real. So again, it was just such desperation and shock. Um, I, what you've been through is something that is it's really unimaginable um, Jody was that the time when you discovered maybe social media and you thought there may be some opportunity there to either grieve or share the story and um, how did social media play a role post his death so for me, so I've always had professional social I LinkedIn and Instagram that were professional. My Facebook, you know, Facebook used to be a whole different um, way to communicate. Now it's morphed into something very new, different. But I've always had social media accounts. And even from a small child, as soon as I could write, I've always journaled. I've always used words um, as a way to process. So when Jackson first died, it, it was just constant writing for me. I just, I liken it to, I'm screaming in my head and no one can hear me. If I don't get these thoughts out of my head, I'm, I'm not going to make it. So I, I just wrote and wrote incestuously and maybe an, an inch of what I wrote, I would put onto social media, you know, and part of it was Jackson had a global reach and our, our, our network of friends was global. It was a way to share with them this experience instead of having to have the conversation with everybody over and over. I would post things on my Facebook. I'd post things, you know, videos and stories. And it was a way to thank everybody all at once that, you know, because people are texting you, they, they want to help. They don't know how. So you're bombarded with people calling and texting and emailing me. And it was a way to say to them, I hear you, I see you, I thank you. You're lifting me up. And I want you to know I cannot get to all of you individually. I, I just don't have the strength, but hear me that I hear you and I see you and I'm so grateful. So I would, our post stories about Jack. And I think part of it starts to morph into as a mother, you don't want your child to be forgotten. And it's, and it's, it's strange to think there's a there's a, a cat, there's a limited now, there's no more pictures of Jack, there's no more stories of Jack, there'll be no more videos of Jack. So those treasures, there's something that, until I have to prove that he was here. And so I would post on my, on my personal, you know, platforms about Jack. And then 
the post that you saw that brought us together, I've never used LinkedIn in any other way but professional. So here comes June. It is, it's actually, it was the anniversary of his fourth, the death of his, his anniversary death. So it was June 8th. And I never know, it's only been, you know, four times I've had to do this. I don't know how I'm going to feel on that day until I really open my eyes. And my husband and I had decided we were going to go up to the mountains where we, Jackson grew up and just go hiking on that day and just go up and be in the places that he loved and be, you know, just, just together and alone and just let it go. But I, for whatever reason, I got up because I knew I was going to be going to Chicago for this, this event. And it was going to, I was going to leave it in a few weeks. It would be the first time that I had been there since Jackson died. So I went, I thought I need to let everyone know I'm going to be in Chicago. So it was a way for me to go, okay, you guys, I'm going to come back to, to Chicago. I'm going to come back for Neocon and we're going to see each other. And it, it, it was me trying to say to them in a, in a one fell swoop, you haven't seen me since Jackson died. Some of them may not have known that he died. I don't, I didn't know for all the people that I'm connected with who knew and who didn't. And as I started to write, it was very unintentionally that the story came out of what happened that day. And I'm telling them, this is why you didn't see me there four years ago. This is what happened. And I was in the end, I said, I just want you to know that when I see you, I'm going to be so happy to see you and that I'm okay. You know, this, this is, this is what happened to me. This is why I've been gone all this time, but I'm, I'm okay. And, and I want you to talk about Jackson and it's, it, you know, you have to give people permission, even when he first passed away and all my very tight immediate friends, when I was going to see them for the first time after he died, I realized people don't know what to do with death. They're afraid of it. They don't know what, to, how, how do you talk about this? You know, I've just experienced what would people would say is the most tragic loss, the mother of a child. You know, you lose your parents. That That's the natural evolution of our lives, you know. But to lose a child is just not natural. And yet I liken it to, you know, rubbernecking when you're driving down the freeway and there's an accident, you can't help but look. You're so afraid of it. You don't want it to be you or anyone you know, but you, you look, you can't help but look. This is the same way. I think people are so, parents are like, oh my gosh, she's lost her child. They're so afraid, but they're drawn to it, but they don't know how to approach it. So I would see, get ready to see my friends. I'd text and say, listen, it's okay to talk about Jack. You can ask me any questions you want to. Don't be afraid. I'm happy to talk about it. And when they, when they had that permission, they felt relief. They were grateful for the permission. So in that LinkedIn post, I was saying to them, I'm going to be there and I'm going to be, I'm okay. And I'm going to be so happy. And please talk about Jack. Ask me questions. And that's how I ended it. And then I, and then I said, I, I remember saying, you know, I, I thought to myself, why am I really posting this? Why am I sharing my public pain in a very professional forum like this and putting my son's picture in the post? I thought my first intention was to share and let you know I'm coming back. And I thought, is that really real? Or is it, I just don't want my child to be forgotten? And then I hit send. We get in the car <laughs> We go up to our little town called Evergreen, Colorado. We go on our hike and there's no cell service. My phone was in the car. I get back in the car. And I, my phone's blowing up. I'm like, what in the world? I said, oh my gosh. I said, my husband, I said, oh my gosh, my, I've got a thousand views on my post thinking that's crazy. We go to lunch. We go another hike. 
I come back, it's like, oh my gosh, there's a hundred thousand views on my post. It became, so today it's almost 16 million views in a month, not even a month, a month tomorrow, 16 million views on that post. But more than that, here's what I think I had to understand and I had to sit in the people who reached out to me privately, the messages I got on that post, people want to share their pain. Oh my gosh, I lost my child. Oh my gosh, I lost my son. This happened to me, but they wouldn't, they didn't want to post it in the, the comments. They came to me privately. Thank you for sharing this. No one will talk about my child. You know, I, I'm not all talk about it at work. I'm afraid I'm going to get judged. The burden of, I shouldn't say burden. It was heavy to read. And one young man, he's like, I'm leaving Boston. I'm flying first class to Ireland. I'm sobbing in first class. I have two boys at home and I'm reading your post. And I know I don't know you, but oh my gosh, I just can't, I couldn't, I couldn't survive this. I mean, it was, again, that's that, that's that, the tragedy piece. People are drawn to the tragedy and going, oh my gosh, how did you survive this? Because it's their worst nightmare and they're reading my worst nightmare. But so many people want to tell their story. And I did it again on a professional forum, which I don't typically do anything but professional posts on LinkedIn. And I did it. And the people that came to me, how it opened up the conversations. And here, here's what I think. We should talk about these things in our professional world because my personal life is not separate from my professional life. I am the same person in both environments. Who I am professionally is greatly impacted by who I am personally and the things that happen, the good and the bad, the triumph and the tragedy, both are shaping who I am. And in a professional forum, we should be able to talk about these things. I had a C I can't, won't call them out, but I had a couple of CEOs of some major companies message me and say, I wish this was a conversation that people would have. I wish people would say my child's name. I wish I could talk about this, but I can't bring it into the workplace. I lead this fortune 10 company. These things aren't talked about. I'm thinking they should be, they should be. There are, are 12,000 people who came to me privately with a message of, of not all of them had grief. Some of them just wanted to support me and, and say kind things. What also surprised me with 16 million views, all the interactions, there was not one troll. There was not one negative comment. Oh, well, he was an addict. He deserved it, did it to himself, serves him right. None of that. None of why are you posting this on LinkedIn? I thought, oh my gosh, I might, I might get obliterated by people going, this doesn't belong on LinkedIn. I think it, it does. After the reaction I received, again, thinking I was talking to my little network of, of global connections of my friends and my little LinkedIn. Well, you, you spoke you spoke to me as well. And I think what to me, when I looked at this, obviously I could tell the pain that you were in. I also could tell that you really want his memory to last. Absolutely. And part of the reason I wanted to do this podcast is really two, threefold. One, is highlight the problem of addiction and drug use. And I think that no one is born a drug user. Yeah. It's really, you know, the influence of whether it's peers or whatever it is. So, you know, you know, talking about childhood of Jackson and the talented person that he is or he was, it just shows you this was not destined to be, but something happened. 
the second purpose is um, really highlighting the um, the power of social media and the interaction that can happen. And the last piece is I do I did sense some strength coming back to you, which was very nice to see. So much. And, and nobody really, you know, like you said, nobody can move on from something like this. But seeing the fact that you are capturing your strength back and you are getting back to the life that at least you you had is also uh, a sense of triumph and sharing that with us was really very, very helpful. And I reached out to you because I felt there's a lot that we can talk about. And I'm so grateful that you're able to share this story. I know how emotional it is, but sharing it hopefully will reach people to know more about who Jackson is. Yeah, it, it's it's the, the effect that post had. Again, it went around the world. And in your right, so many people wanted to just they wanted to pray for me. They wanted to lift me up. There was just, in fact, so when I did go to Chicago for that show, so the, the Merchandise Mart, if you're familiar with the Merchandise Mart in Chicago, it's the, it's the single largest square foot. It's just huge. I was walking in the hall with my colleagues and I hear someone go, are you Jody O'Dell? Are you Jody O'Dell? I turn around. There's a man who I don't, never met. He said, oh my gosh, it's you. I saw your post. I came here to find you in the halls, the, the millions of square feet of space in that building, he walked to find me, he found me and said, I just wanna tell you, I want you to choose happiness. And, and, and I mean, we address that too, something I want you to know. I was listening to, I, I walk every morning, I do my walking meditation every morning and I had a, a podcast on and someone said a statement and said, she said, there, there is joy in grief. And I, it, I was like, wait, no, that doesn't sound right. I thought, stop right there, that no, there is not joy in grief. The way to say that joy can exist with grief. There's not joy in my grief, but I made the decision that I love life. You know, my, my best moments, I, I point behind me, we have a, a lovely patio in the front. And my most, most favorite moment is when my husband and I get up early in the morning and we drink coffee together and we, we start our day and we look at the flowers and then hear the birds and we hike and we walk. I want to experience joy. You know, I, I, I want to be with Jackson and I can't, I, I don't let myself think too far. I can't imagine if I lived to be 80 or 90 and have 30, 40 years where I didn't get to be with him. I can't imagine that. So I don't think too far down that road, but I, I can't live in, in, in depression. I can't live in the fog. And some people ask, you know, why don't you take action and get involved in, in the drug problem. And here's my answer to that. I don't want to live in that world. I don't want to live in, in this world of drugs and addiction. I don't know that I can make a change. There are people better equipped for me who are championing those causes. I'll speak about them and I definitely have opinions about them, but that would keep me in that pain. That would keep me in that moment. And it's not going to make it better for my child. Not that I don't want to save other people's children, I just can't live in that world. I can't live in that, that anger. And that's where I would stay. I would stay in an angry place and I'm not an angry person. Um, so that narrative should be, there's joy can exist in the space with grief, but there's not joy in grief at all. And it, should never be, it shouldn't be explained that way. They can be in the same space. You know, Do I cry still when I'm crying today? I don't cry as often, but I also, keep it all very put away. Um, I keep myself wickedly busy because when I'm still, 
is is when it all can roll in and take over. Um, so weekends are harder than weekdays because I can bury myself in work. And I do. We both do. My husband um, is the same way. We just bury ourselves. But then we can talk about Jack on the weekends and we'll cry. Or we'll hear a song or or he'll pop up on the TV. We'll be changing the channel. All of a sudden there's Jack on the TV. And that's shocking. That's like, ooh, that's kind of a, ooh, there he is. I'm speechless. I, I, I feel, um, first of all, I feel honored that you uh, shared your story with, uh, with me and, and with others. Um, I know it's not easy, but I hope that sharing that story highlights the drug problem that the country is facing, as well as makes more people aware of Jackson. Um, and he stays um, in the memory of a lot of uh, people. And um, I'm very, very grateful that you were willing to come in and just spend some time with me. Well, I'm, I, I'm surprised I saw your message. It's interesting things. I think I was meant to see your message because I couldn't keep up with them. I would try and tap in and look, and I, it was so overwhelming to see all the messages that I couldn't spend much time looking at them because, again, everyone's sorrow was coming you know, in those words, but yet yours, I saw yours and I thought, well, that's interesting. I'll reach back out to you. So I'm amazed. I even saw it. Well, it's, so um, it's uh, destiny. Sometimes things are meant to happen. And I hope that, um, um, as I said, I'm, I'm really very, very privileged and, and I feel honored. And I know this is a very emotional thing to talk about. Sometimes I think these emotional stories could be cathartic. Yeah. talking about them and, and sometimes could be therapeutic sometimes not i mean we don't need to kid ourselves sometimes they become more painful but uh, the goal of this is to keep to keep jackson's story alive and well yep absolutely and, and i thank you i thank you for giving me this time with your audience so i know you your podcast is popular and you talk about all kinds of important health issues so i appreciate you letting this be on your platform thank you so much Julie. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for dialing in to Healthcare Unfiltered. I appreciate your support. I appreciate you working to provide me with the feedback that we all need. Please let me know how I'm doing. Provide feedback again by direct messaging me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan and by uh, sending me notes through my website, shadinabhan.com. Also, you can watch all of these podcast episodes on YouTube, my YouTube channel, Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. I appreciate all of the support that you provide. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and refer friends and colleagues to the podcast. Before I let you go, I would like to leave you with a saying by Rumi. He once said, grief can be the garden of compassion. If you keep your heart open through everything, your pain can become your greatest ally in your life's search for love and wisdom. Until next time, take care.